I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. You know, many of you, like me, are trying to figure out how does one economically survive this pandemic, especially one that requires rerouting and rethinking not only business strategy, but also our fundamental, basic human interactions. And I gotta tell you, at times I feel kind of lost. So for this episode, we wanted to do something special, to get firsthand knowledge from someone who's had to do it for this very virus, COVID-19, against the backdrop of massive governmental disruptions of his fintech and e-commerce operations. Now, this insider perspective we're excited to share is from Brian Miller, the Connecticut-born CEO of Easy China Warehouse, who has had to navigate what it means to engage in e-commerce logistics in mainland China. It's this kind of experience, going through and navigating blocked roads and government-imposed temperature checks and surveillance, that we think will be of enormous value for entrepreneurs and government officials thinking through containment strategies. And it's also an interesting behind-the-curtain look at China's COVID response and what it's taken to thrive in an environment defined by uncertainty and constantly changing conditions. So let's buckle up and go on a virtual trip to see how the other half of the world is battling COVID. Brian, thanks so much for making it to the show. Thanks a lot. Um, I appreciate you guys having me on the show, and hopefully I could share a little bit about uh, what's been happening in China. So, before getting into all the great details, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your company and where it fits in the e-commerce space and and how a guy from Connecticut became the CEO of a logistics company in Shenzhen, China. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'll start a little bit from the beginning. So um, the kind of thing that pushed me to China in the beginning was the other crisis we had, which was in 2008. So I graduated university then. And um, I decided to travel around the world, and I found myself uh, after a year of travel in China. So after I got to China, I studied Chinese, and I started working in manufacturing for one of the largest Chinese state-owned manufacturers. So I actually worked for the Chinese government um, at one of their industrial manufacturing facilities in the heart of China, and I managed their export market. So I managed their uh, market to North America. And we manufactured industrial uh, railroad components. So that's kind of how I started getting into uh, business in China and working uh, in the beginning in, ma- in manufacturing. And then from, from working in manufacturing, I kind of got the itch to um, start developing my own products. I kind of wanted to try e-commerce. At that time, you know, four or five years ago, e-commerce was becoming, it was still relatively small compared to what it is today, but it was still interesting for me. And that's when I started to develop a Bluetooth speakers, my own brand of speakers. And uh, I started to sell them online on Amazon. And, and how then do you make that move from e-commerce to specifically uh, logistics and Easy China Warehouse? 
I still have my e-commerce company, but at the time I found um, a big problem basically from taking your products as an e-commerce seller from the factory and then distributing it around the world. And that's whether you want to get it directly to your customers from China or a lot of people sell on Amazon and they send their products directly to Amazon uh, warehouses where Amazon will help you fulfill the product to the end customer. And so managing uh, shipments around the globe uh, to different Amazon warehouses around the world uh, starts to get very complicated if you sell globally. Um, and I started seeing a big need with a lot of my friends in e-commerce that they were having a lot of trouble with it. So I basically started the company by helping out a lot of my other e-commerce friends ship their products. Um, and that evolved into the business that we have today, which is an e-commerce uh, fulfillment company that ships uh, around the world for e-commerce sellers. So we basically take the products from the manufacturer, we store it in our warehouse in China, and as they sell through their inventory in a respective market, like the US or Europe, we help them to replenish it from China. And then do you ship those products directly to customers in the United States who are purchasing those products? Yeah, so we do two models. One is uh, to ship direct from China to the end customer, we can do. Um, and a lot of people call that drop shipping. So we help people drop ship the product to the end customer. And then the other model is bulk freight. So we will ship a bulk freight um, amount of product on sea or by air um, to another warehouse in the U.S. that will deliver it to the end customer when a sale is made. So we do either model. And, and I also noticed that, uh, just uh, to sort of round things out, that you also help uh, to support crowdfunding campaigns. Um, how exactly does that work? Yeah, so a lot of people that want to create a new invent invention or product, they manufacture it in China. And then usually most of the crowdfunding platforms like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, they allow the person to sell to people all around the world. Um, so the best way after you manufacture the product to get it to your end consumer is to ship it direct from China to those end consumers all around the world. And we help um, companies facilitate that shipment after their new product is made. So we can ship to you know almost 200 countries around the world directly to the end user. Clearly then you run a globally oriented business. Uh, switching gears in, what did the outbreak of the coronavirus mean for you? What was your experience? I'll give you a bit of a timeline how it happened in China, just so everyone can have an idea. Um, it's surprising that it's only started a few months ago. It feels like it's <laughs> it feels like it's been years. But but yeah, actually, in China, it just started. Uh, the government made their first official announcement on December 31st that there was some type of virus that was kind of unknown, um, but it was spreading. Um, and from there, in the first month that we had it in, in China in January, uh, we started to see kind of an escalation of fear throughout society as it spread. Um, and we saw like a slow ramp up of people in China starting to wear masks, which we don't see much in many other places, but in Asia, it's very common um, to protect yourself and to protect other people. So within a week or two, we started to see about half of the population wearing masks. And by the 26th of, the, of January, the government actually made it a law that you had to wear masks around when you were in public. And also at the end of the month, the government started to quarantine and lock down cities within China. 
So at the end of January, we saw Wuhan shut down, which was the epicenter that everyone kind of knows now of the virus. And a few days later, um, within the week, they shut down the whole province that uh, Wuhan is in. Um, So we started to see the uh, government act very quick, specifically in the first month, to try to contain the spread. Um, And at that time, uh, I, to be honest, didn't know if I had to shut down my business because there was a concern that we would have to shut down everything. Um, So for for us and for business owners, it was a massive concern as it started to spread quickly here. So you mentioned that there was a very um, sort of swift government response once once obviously the that there was more public awareness as to just how dangerous the the, the situation was um uh, what kinds of uh restrictions were put in place by the government immediately that really raised alarms for you as to whether or not your business would survive yeah this is a great question so in addition to like people wearing masks we very quickly started to see everyone's temperature being taken at all public type places. So for example, if you went to the supermarket, uh, they would take your temperature on the way in. Um, If you were to go to the bank, you would also get your temperature taken. Um, I took a taxi to my warehouse one day and at one of the tolls, they had a whole roadblock where they were taking everyone's temperature that drove through the toll booth. So you quickly started to see that they were trying to check, you know, the people that were out to see if they can catch any cases of people with a fever. And in addition, at places like malls, they started to lock all the doors and only allow people in one entrance so that they could check everyone's temperature. So the first thing was temperature checks for sure. Um, And then the second thing started to be registration. So in my own apartment, I had to start registering when I left and when I came back and where I went and my phone number. And that was similar at the bank as well. So they started to have you sign in to places that you went to. And that was kind of in an effort to backtrace any cases just in case there was an infection. And at the same time, they also uh, started to block off the city. So they made it hard for you to travel throughout the city. And in certain isolated cases, Uh, If you were living close to an infected, uh, a confirmed infected person, they would actually quarantine you so you couldn't leave your house. And they do that by providing you with um, a few tickets. And those tickets you use to leave your house every day to uh, get food. So I had a Belgian friend that got two tickets a week and he could leave his house twice a week to go buy food. Um, And that was kind of in an effort to minimize the amount of um, uh, traffic that you had around those confirmed cases. So very extreme measures and things that maybe people in the U.S. might think are crazy, but um, they they started to work, you know. (laughs) I mean, I mean, but I'm trying to sort of imagine this because you you're literally in the business of making things move. Right. I mean, like, I mean, you're in the business of making sure that things can move seamlessly or as quickly as possible across borders. But due to this sort of public health crisis, you're in a situation where literally the ability for you to get to your warehouse or I'm I'm imagining for people to get to a shipping dock or whatever could be hampered because, you know, the government's trying to respond to this impending um, 
emergency. So, I mean, what does a logistics company do? What what did you do under those circumstances? How 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 do you survive um, in terms of 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 movement in a world where uh, there are such onerous restrictions on how you move? Yeah, it's a great question because actually it got even worse for companies. So um, that was just kind of the personal level that I told you. But um, towards the end of Chinese New Year, which they extended one week to kind of stop people from traveling further, uh, they were worried about spread of the virus. Um, They added new restrictions for all companies that were in industrial facilities like mine or a factory. And basically they created new safety rules. Um, and the safety rules included we needed proper uh, protection equipment for our employees, so like masks and gloves if required. Um, we needed to register our employees that they worked at our address, uh, at our facility. We needed to uh, take their temperature every day and report if they had a high temperature to the government. <laughs> and we had to disinfect the facility every day, okay? And we couldn't start working until a safety inspector from China, like a government safety inspector, came to our facility. So not only were we having trouble actually physically getting to our place, but we couldn't start commence work unless we were approved to work. So that really hindered the ability of a lot of companies to get moving, especially because you have such a small amount of inspectors compared to such a large amount of businesses, right? So everyone puts in their application to get inspected and the inspectors can only do so many per day. So you had a lot of people waiting to try to get started work um, after the new year, the Chinese new year, that is. And, and how was this information entered? I mean, like, like, is this like a piece of paper that you're putting in the mail or are you sort of, is there an app on your phone? I mean, what kind of technology was being used to orchestrate, you know, this this level of uh, surveillance? Well, I think it was more of a government-private company partnership. So uh, a lot of the big tech companies in China started helping the government develop kind of software to manage all of this. And so I think Tencent was one of the biggest ones. And they created software that we were allowed to submit all these documents online. So that was the first thing. So there was like a a platform that you can log into and submit everything online. And the second thing was um, each person had to download an app. And uh, we have WeChat in China, which is similar to like WhatsApp that you might use uh, in the US or Europe. And there's many programs within WeChat. And we had to have a program that basically tracked our name and our health status, as well as our travel history. So uh, these uh, big tech companies very quickly created uh, these products to start uh, managing basically the flow of people throughout the country. And on your app, you were given a a color code to say how, um, I don't know if you want to call it dangerous you are, but if you're green, you can travel (laughs) everywhere. If you're green, you can travel everywhere. If you were yellow, you had some restrictions. And if you were red, um, you could not. And that depended on where you were from. And, and there was a lot of factors. I, I don't even know the, the, the algorithm that goes in behind yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so it, it's literally like an algorithm. 
it's like it's like a, a Yelp. It's like a human Yelp, right? You know, it's like okay, so if you're if you're red, you know, you just can't go anywhere whatsoever. So you're gonna stay at home, and you know, you're green because okay, you're a little bit risky because you live close to somebody, but it's two blocks away, and I don't know, your credit score is good. It's that that that's, that's and 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 you'd wait to receive whatever that score is. Is that is that how it would work? You know, you enter in your information, and then you you're told what your designation is. Yeah, you would exactly, and and you know, I, I was always green. Um, but from my understanding, like people from Hubei and Wuhan, where it started, they were always a higher color. So that inhibited them from traveling to other places throughout China. Um, and there were other metrics that I, I don't think they want people to know how they <laughs> how they create those <laughs> metrics, because then everyone starts gaming the system, right? So um, right. yeah, people had a lot of theories about how they did it, but the government never announced like the actual way that they were uh, doing doing that type of uh, judgment, I guess, on on your your status. So, so that sounds like an enormous amount of uh, friction, to say the very least, in terms of the business operations, uh, especially in, in in logistics and and, and shipping and the like. Um, generally speaking, did did the government provide any kind of uh, financial or economic assistance to small businesses and in particular sort of the e-commerce um, sector given all of these new uh, sort of uh, requirements and, and uh, th- that were entered into uh, for, again, public health and safety reasons. Specifically with logistics, we were kind of lucky because um, the Chinese government de- designated it as kind of a necessary industry or a, a critical industry for the country. And so they helped with getting the logistics companies online. That means like having the inspectors come to our facility first to allow us to start work. So with that regard uh, for our industry and obviously health industry, so anyone that was like manufacturing masks or anything that would help to fight the, 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 you know, the virus spread, uh, those factories were basically put online first. And then people, uh, you know, because logistics is kind of critical to our world, we don't realize it, but it's important. It's how we get everything. Um, and then after that, all of the other industries were, were allowed to go online. So, so for us, we were, we were lucky because we were in like one of those industries, but for a lot of people, it took weeks, uh, for some factories to be allowed to commence uh, work, which is very, you know, debilitating for for a, for small companies. And as far as as far as financial aid, um, this is kind of surprising that China has not actually announced a large stimulus package for um, the the country, uh, other than doing fiscal policy like cutting rates and things. Um, they haven't actually been giving out money like the U.S. has with their two trillion dollar. Uh, 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 support for businesses. Um, we do have some news that we're going to get some financial relief on our rent, but we still are yet to know how much it is and for how long it will be provided. So there seems to be some small amount of help, but it's not much. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how China turns out from um, this type of uh, this type of way of going about it, I guess. E-commerce is itself a, a kind of financial technology firm, but but did you use or utilize any specific forms of financial technology to help you in sort of navigating uh, the crisis, especially, of course, given the fact that 
there were so many different uh, frictions and, and restrictions put on your on your business. Um, and, and did you see technology, uh, sort of fintech or otherwise, change in terms of how you interfaced with your own customers? Well, I think this is happening for everyone. I mean, technology, even for our own workplace. So we started like a work at home policy, except for all of the um, uh, the actual warehouse workers that were doing the picking and packing of products. So our our you know team immediately went remote, and we're still relatively remote because um, a lot of the people are still kind of worried in China. Actually, surprisingly, even though it's pretty safe here. Um, and I gave everyone the option of staying home. So that's kind of what we're seeing around the world. But as far as like um, financial technology, we generally, since we receive a lot of international payments, the most you know financial technology that we're generally dealing with is payment, uh, like wire transfers and a currency conversion and um, that type of thing. So uh, those have become, especially with China that has a regulated con- currency, um, companies like TransferWise and Payoneer have been like critical to our business because they make the transfer of money much easier into renminbi than if we would have to go through the banking system. So for us, like that's one of the most important things that's happened for us because most of our customers are from abroad. Um, even though it's still not a smooth process and I think it can be improved, <laughs> um, but that's that's the main technologies that we're using uh, to manage our payments internationally. The news, at least here in the United States, as things are are sort of becoming more severe, is that um, the situation, as you've kind of hinted at, is 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 getting incrementally better over in mainland China. Do you get? Uh, are are you seeing any uh, impact uh, writ large on? how e-commerce is being situated within the country. In other words, like, do you think that there are going to be any structural changes in e-commerce uh, or structural changes in terms of the relationship uh, between people and e-commerce platforms that will be permanent because of this coronavirus uh, crisis and experience? Absolutely. Um, so I think one of the big things uh, well, I'll get into at the end kind of that I disagree with, which is that um, I don't think China is actually getting back on its feet. Uh, we could maybe talk mm. about that later. But as far as um, e-commerce adoption, in general, China has quite a large e-commerce adoption. Um, people use e-commerce quite frequently. But what we saw in China is a lot more people using it 100% to buy all their things. Um, so I think you saw more users get on the platforms, more users sign up, and more users kind of become more familiar with it. And I think one of the biggest trends, because a lot of us couldn't leave our house, I mean, I was already doing it, and you're seeing it in the US, which is kind of online uh, grocery shopping and purchasing uh, fresh food and, and, and things like that that are perishable online. So during the coronavirus here in China, that industry exploded. Like everyone was buying all of their groceries uh, all online. And um, I saw, you know, a, a very big trend of people doing that. And a lot of my friends that are not kind of going back to the supermarket. So I think like that's one of the biggest like things that I've seen is like people don't want to like go do that type of shopping anymore. I'm not saying everyone, but I think it's definitely a trend that we're seeing. <laughs> 
Do you see the situation now then, then getting better, um, both for people on the ground in terms of life getting back to, to, to normal? And then uh, is any normalcy creeping into how you do business or are you just now, you know, has e-commerce just shifted to uh, an indefinite new normal? I think it's an indefinite normal because on the ground, uh, things are not recovering like people are saying uh, in the U.S. So I would say we're probably at like 30 to 40% normal here. Um, We still have a large segment of the population that's kind of scared, not scared, but nervous to go out and spend money. So you simply just don't see consumers out much um, spending a lot of money. Um, Not a lot of people at restaurants. um, And you see a significant amount of bankruptcies here. So... um, in malls, you see uh, lots of shops shutting down. I've seen a whole floor of a mall shut down. <laughs> um, and the, the, the environment is looking grim. So I, I think, you know, a lot of those uh, freestanding stores are going to have a very hard time competing with e-commerce, especially as we try to get out of the crisis. So the benefits to e-commerce sellers, right, they don't have a big amount of overhead in rent. Uh, that, you know, physical stores have. And so not only is are people going to buy more online, but literally a lot of these shops are going out of business right in front of my eyes. Um, and I have a good friend uh, that runs a few pizza shops in China. His sales are down 70% um, from normal. They're not rebounding at all. And he says if he has to pay his full rent, he's going to go bankrupt too. So um, in, in my opinion, the, the environment in China is relatively dire uh, compared to what people are saying uh, outside of China. Brian, it is uh, uh, really a pleasure and uh, uh, we're, we're just delighted to have had you on. Uh, stay safe and, and hopefully the situation both in China and the United States will improve soon. Sure. Great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. One of the big lessons of the coronavirus is just how small the world is. No matter how far destinations may seem, the well-being of other people can impact our very own, both in terms of our health and our pocketbooks. Now, the pandemic, of course, draws such lessons into stark relief. And it's also highlighting the fact that our interconnectedness need not only play out in real time, but can offer us a glimpse of both where we've been and what may await us in the near future. Now, Brian's harrowing experiences are a reminder that the very best response to any crisis is preparation, coordination, a cool head, and a seriousness of purpose. Both, by the way, for market participants and the government. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.